Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that tackles some pretty tough topics, and I think we have a tough topic today. Um, We are readdressing an issue, but in a different way. Last year, we did a a month-long series of shows about um, courts and child custody and family courts, and it was like we called it the crisis in the family courts. I wish we could say that that crisis has been alleviated, Um, It has not. It continues to be a huge, huge problem for women uh, who have experienced domestic violence and abuse. We're looking at it from a little bit different standpoint today, but some of the issues that we're talking about are the same old, same old, and we're going to be talking about those as well. We're talking about power and control in family courts. Our guest is Julie Ansis, Dr. Julie Ansis. Um, Thank you for joining us, Julie. I appreciate your being here. And uh, thanks for for sharing your expertise and your studies. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, Dr. Ansis uh, serves as Georgia Tech's Associate Vice President for Institute uh, Diversity. She provides operational leadership for strategic planning and assessment to identify appropriate agendas to achieve Georgia Tech's inclusive, excellent uh, vision and equity and goals. But Tell me, please, about your work in uh, domestic violence areas. Uh, Well, um, for a long time, I've been researching and publishing in the area of uh, gender and race in particular, more broadly multicultural issues and diversity, and looking at experiences of inequity, experiences of discrimination as impacts a variety of people in a number of areas. And one of those areas is uh, certainly the legal system and more specifically family court. So I've conducted research uh, for several years, um, particularly with a particular focus on women's experiences um, in family court as relates to divorce and custody proceedings. Julie, I appreciate your research. I've had an opportunity to look at some of it, and I'm really happy that we're getting a chance to to speak on it a little bit today. Let's start out by talking about what you mean by power and control in the courts. In my experience, when people are in a divorce situation or something is uh, forcing them to seek some sort of resolution in court, the assumption is that that's where you go for justice. That's where you go for fairness. I've had people um, talk to me, uh, they know that I I talk about domestic violence issues a lot, and they'll say, well, why don't they just take him to court? They'll make the the abuser behave. The courts will make him uh, pay the child support. The courts will make him stand up and and do what he's supposed to do. In other words, the courts will give you justice. I always say courts aren't about justice. Courts are about laws. And courts are about the individuals who interpret those laws. Am I just a jaded person, or is that how you see it as well? Well, I think that's a very common conception that one will find um, justice in the legal system. And I think we grow up with a lot of messages. I know I did growing up with certain television shows related to the legal system and the courtroom, for the most part, um, that demonstrated or depicted uh, a courtroom as a place where your story will be told, all the facts uh, will come to light, you'll have um, the ability to express yourself, uh, and what much of research finds, including my own, is that that's not always the case. Um, You have human beings who are making decisions. Uh, in the justice system, whether it's mental health professionals, and I identify as one uh, through my psychology training, or it's uh, court-appointed officials, judges, attorneys, etc., who are very much subject to uh, bias and misconceptions um, and misinformation as it relates to individuals, as it relates to women, men, 
children um, and particularly how it relates to abuse and how abuse dynamics play out uh, in a relationship and how they often continue to play out uh, in the courtroom and that they're perpetuated uh, and allowed to play out in the courtroom, uh, oftentimes unbeknownst to many mental health professionals and court officials. So I think uh, we really need, and, and I hope we get into this later, uh, we really need some, some better training for um, both court-appointed officials, legal professionals, and mental health professionals who are involved in these cases. Yeah, I, and, and that's its own kind of problem because mm-hmm. um, mental health professionals can choose what kind of additional training they want. Um, judges are required to have some additional training, but they also get to choose what they want to have that training in. There's no one saying you have to be trained in this, you have to be trained in that. They get to choose. Mm-hmm. So if I feel like I already know everything there is to know about domestic violence, that I can take care of my clients and my the people that come to me, why would I get more? I think I need training in uh, new ways of, you know, managing my uh, um, bipolar patients, for example. Um, so it, it becomes an issue. No one is saying you have to get training in this particular area, whether you're a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a judge, or an attorney. Um, so I see that as a huge issue when we're talking training. But we're going to get back, get, get to that a little mm-hmm. bit down the road. Yeah. I think anybody who, well, let me rephrase that. I think that for people who are involved in what happens with domestic violence, intimate partner abuse, um, intimate partner violence, whatever act, you know name you're using for it, um, it's basically all tomato, tomato. Um, it's just trying to come up with terminology that, that describes it best. For um, purposes of this discussion, let's just call it intimate, intimate partner abuse, um, because one of those problems of, of getting of using the courts for power and control, I think, has to do with terminology. Um, mm-hmm. Courts are all about words, aren't they? Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, tell us how you see courts being used to perpetuate power and control in abuse situations? Sure. Um, Well, I should say, you know, most uh, custody cases in particular settle out of court. Um, It's really the the 5% or less of cases that the courts often view as uh, so-called high conflict. And in those high conflict cases, we have uh, dynamics, Related to power and control, specifically um, behavioral patterns that are used um, on the part of one partner uh, to gain power, control over another individual. And that could manifest itself as physical abuse. And most people think, you know, that's that's where it ends, physical abuse. But it could also manifest in uh, emotional psychological abuse, somebody who's very controlling with financial resources, economic abuse. And these tactics of power and control, intimate partner violence, like as you said, there are many terms to describe, um, continue or may continue to manifest during the dissolution of the relationship and pervade legal proceedings in a variety of ways. So um, I have over the years interviewed many women who were involved in divorce and custody proceedings. Uh, many of them, or the majority of them, were very prolonged, lasting from a year, year and a half to several years on average, which is extremely stressful. Um, and they, these women, and this has um, been demonstrated in prior research as well speak about particular kinds of dynamics that happen in the court um, and how the courtroom can be used to actually re-victimize somebody. Um, One way uh, in which this is done is um, by seeking full custody. And I'm not talking about um, a partner who is already, you know, uh, very much involved in their child's uh, well-being and development, but somebody who's been basically uninvolved or not interested, for example, seeking full custody. 
um, and initiating unnecessary court battles related to custody and related to visitation. Typically, when that happens, um, a guardian ad litem gets involved, a custody evaluator gets involved, um, which makes for oftentimes a great deal of stress um, emotionally, psychologically, financially, uh, especially for kids and especially for uh, the primary uh, parents. Um, another way in which this plays out is through prolonging the case. So um, one, the, the abusive spouse often fails to provide documents that are requested. Um, and when that happens, then you have multiple requests for these documents, which drives up the financial costs. You have accusations against um, one's character, which then requires investigation and multiple charges of contempt are quite common amongst those who are already have already engaged in sort of abusive uh, dynamics. Another well, common tactic. We talked yeah. off the off air a little bit about mm-hmm. um, a case that I know of where he, the mm-hmm. the husband kept changing lawyers, kept firing the lawyers and hiring new ones, but then didn't give them all the background information. So that lawyer would file paperwork or whatever, and then the woman's lawyer would have to educate the the new lawyer about no, mm-hmm. this has already been done, this has already been taken care of, we already got you know requested this, but it was her dime mm-hmm. then that was educating his yeah. new lawyer. You know, uh, yeah. so I mean mm-hmm. the, the tactics are just never ending. Yes, and that and that the last thing you mentioned is is one of the other major. Uh, Tactics is manipulation of finances or or bleeding the other side, it's known, uh, in the field, bleeding the other side, um, you know, by engaging in that kind of behavior that you described, um, which then, you know, continually requires or that folks are, are, are up to speed with regard uh, to the case, um, failing to provide financial documentation, um, opening hidden business accounts, et cetera. Um, and many of these tactics are really attempts to get um, the victim of abuse to acquiesce or to agree to, to unfavorable terms, especially financially. And that's often seen as the goal of these kinds of tactics. Um, and, well, you know, and, as, yeah, yeah I, and, and I think that, you know, we've seen these. I think a lot of people have heard about it. Um, the other thing is that there are other court personnel involved. It's not just the lawyers. You have the guardians ad litem. You have the, mm-hmm. the psychologists. Um, can we talk a little bit about these ancillary pe- personnel and their lack of mm-hmm. uh, necessarily uh, uh, or coincidentally their lack of training that might be mm-hmm. contributing to this whole issue? Yeah, that's that's a major major issue, um, and it, it's it's one that that I focused on with regard to my research. Um, interestingly, I engaged in a, a really large scale research project. Uh, wasn't necessarily intending uh, to find uh, particular themes or patterns, but the same ones kept coming up. So, um, guardian guardians ad litem, custody evaluators play such an important role in the court system. They're the ones who are conducting assessments and evaluations and providing recommendations related to custody and visitation to the court. Um, And there are many limitations and many problems. Uh, One is that the training, uh, the background, the credentials um, of custody uh, custody evaluators differ from state to state, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So um, you could have a layperson who has no background, essentially, in uh, psychology or psychological development or uh, training in abuse or domestic violence, um, engaging in these evaluations and making these kinds of recommendations. Um, So this is one problem, uh, the limited training. what I found with my research, and, and again, this is with women who were engaged in uh, prolonged custody disputes, um, are a couple of things. Uh, one is, um, and these were mostly moms, these were all moms, um, really questioned uh, the training and the competence of these custody evaluators. 
uh, they told me stories of very limited information gathering, very short interviews that they had with the guardian ad litem, um, brief interviews. They felt that judgments were based on bias or just completely um, irrelevant information. And, and the danger with that, and we know from uh, research in psychology about cognitive bias and once an opinion is formed, it's very hard to change that opinion. People are steadfast in, in keeping um, with their particular uh, hypotheses that they've derived. Um, they well, and, about, and as you were saying, yeah. once, once they have made a, a, an assessment or a conclusion, mm-hmm. um, courts are designed to never go back and readdress that. Mm-hmm. There, de- yeah. I mean, uh, Dr. Dr. Saunders, in his uh, mm-hmm. uh, wonderful study uh, of the court system, pointed this out that that the way the courts are designed is we look at each little piece of this individually, we make a decision on that, and then we set it aside, and you don't go back. The problem with that is domestic violence has to be seen in 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 a context, mm-hmm. and the it, it appears to me that the courts and court personnel are not designed in a manner that provides that context. Am I right in that? I think you are right. And um, I heard many such stories of custody evaluators making a decision or determination. Um, then later new information or different data would come out, you know, would, would be revealed actually that undermined uh, this hypothesis and uh, courts refusing to change a report, custody evaluators, Sometimes changing a report, actually, uh, but the judge not wanting to accept it. Um, and, you know, abuse, especially with children, sexual abuse is not always, is usually not revealed in very obvious ways. And oftentimes there are no signs of um, sexual abuse or no obvious physical signs. And, you know, custody evaluators don't have the training necessarily to really understand more subtle signs of abuse. Um, uh, women talk about uh, custody evaluators not understanding children, not understanding how to talk to children, developing trust with the child. Um, first, going in and asking all kinds of questions, again, that didn't really get at the developmental level of the child and then making determinations and um, evaluations and recommendations based upon a 20-minute interview, so-called interview, uh, with, a, with a child. Um, they, uh, I, I remember one situation custody. that I heard of where the, both the father and the mother were at, the father was fighting for full custody, had never been a huge participant, and the the courts asked the uh, the custody evaluator asked them to fill out forms. One of those forms was list people who can attest to your experience as a mother, to your involvement as a mother, and uh, or a father. And the mother listed every school it listed like 20 people from school teachers to um uh, church affiliates that kind of thing father listed three people um two of whom were relatives and the guardian ad litem went to the mother and said well i can't call all these people narrow it down to three he has oh, three you yeah. have three you know so oh. here i would think that the list the mm-hmm. volume would have made a difference to that evaluator but it didn't she saw it as, well, I have to have the same number on each list, so you narrow yours down. You you meet mm-hmm. his standard. We'll, we'll, we'll make him the gold standard that you have to then um, mm-hmm. uh, meet. Um, and, again, it was the um, a 20-minute phone call, and, you know, I, I think it was a trip to McDonald's or something with the children, and that was it. And based on yeah. that experience, um, this custody evaluator wrote a, a, a five-page report to the judge and to recommend custody. I, 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 I just can't imagine someone thinking that that was a, an adequate picture to make that kind of a life-changing decision for a child. Yeah, and I've heard many such uh, stories. They're, they're almost unbelievable. And like going back to one of the, your first comment uh, the start of this interview, you know, people thinking that justice um, and fairness will prevail in the court system, um, and because of the limitations that we're talking about, that doesn't always that doesn't always happen. Another important point here, when we talk about um, abuse um, or abusers, 
um, victims or survivors often describe abusers um, as having particular particular personality characteristics. And I have to say, with the women I interviewed um, for my research, it was almost like they were describing um, the same partner, that they were all married to the same partner in terms of those kinds of characteristics um, they described um, very exploitative qualities, manipulative qualities, um, and somebody who often presents as very cool under pressure or stress. And if you have a custody evaluator, a judge, uh, whoever's making these important decisions, not understanding um, those kinds of dynamics, the dynamics of somebody who could be described as uh, having sociopathic uh, qualities or narcissistic qualities um, relative to victims of abuse who don't evidence those characteristics um, and present as very anxious, very depressed, very shaky. Um, often, well, and, and many of them have PTSD that's been undiagnosed and untreated, yes. so they probably also have, a, have PTSD that they're dealing with. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, I yes. interviewed a family court judge from, from Denver mm. um, a couple of years ago, and I asked her off air, please tell me what goes on in the mind of a family court judge when there are two people in front of you, each petitioning for, for 100% custody of the children, one of whom has domestic violence, documented domestic violence in their background. What goes through the family court judge, uh, judge's mind in making that decision? And her response just gobsmacked me because she said, well, you have to understand, you have two people in front of you, and mm-hmm. one is just frantic and can't even get her own life together. You can tell she's just frantic. She needs time to get her own life together and get organized. And he's already organized. He's got it under control. So, of course, if the domestic violence isn't that bad, we will let him have mm-hmm. the children. Yeah. Uh, I will never classic. forget that. Never. Mm-hmm. Never forget yeah. that. And I'm going, but that's what domestic violence is. Yeah. That's, what it, that's what it is. You know, you clearly have yeah. no concept. The other thing that I think uh, we need to mention in your description of how these men can be manipulative is they can also be so charming. Um, They get a lot of empathy from people. They got a lot of sympathy from people because they can just be so sad about this situation. Um, They just, Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's an astounding combination of skill (laughs) that they can exhibit. (laughs) Yeah, you know, one sometimes been, I think uh, I wish I could get, I could I could assume some of these you know can I go to class to learn how to. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it says you know well two things. Um, you know, women do describe this. Women that I've interviewed and, and uh, conducted research with speak about uh, feeling like their partner, um, you know, charmed the guardian ad litem or the custody evaluator that they manipulated. Um, and there's some gender dynamics that happen there, too. So they were talking about an abusive husband, and many of these guardian ad litems are women. And there's uh, that kind of charm and seduction and manipulation which gets played out in that relationship. And if you have a guardian ad litem who isn't trained or conscious about uh, bias, um, uh, cognitive bias, and how that kind of charm and, and that dynamic could play out in her judgment or her recommendations to the court system in a very difficult uh, situation. And also a lot of attorneys advise women who are going through this experience um, to uh, present, you know, in a way um, that they seem uh, rational and logical, but oftentimes it's, uh, you, you can't, there's been no win for women. So if they present as very cool and and collected, oftentimes they're accused of not really caring um, or concerned. And if they present um, all the trauma-like symptoms, which you described, which are very, very real, they're they're seen as unstable, et cetera. And, you know, you have the court system who then – who then uh, perpetuate a secondary trauma, if you will. So you have um, 
a mom or a woman who has been traumatized in her relationship, uh, thinking that justice is going to be served, goes to the, the court system for aid or for help, and then finds herself engaged and embroiled in an extremely stressful, biased experience oftentimes, and then experiences a secondary trauma on top of it. So anybody who's really a feeling a person um, could not really present in the most cool, collected way that's expected of one uh, in the court system. So it's a real double bind. It is. I often say that the courts kind of operate on three principles. One is that just because he was abusive to her doesn't mean that he's going to be abusive to the children. I think that's a common held belief in courts that she that a father is essential to a child so even if it's a bad father he still needs to have a relationship with his child in order to be uh, beneficial to the child and the third one is that she lies i think there right. that most courts operate under those three principles um and i don't quite get that did you find that in in your study Yes, everything you just said. <laughs> so, <Yeah>. um, <laughs> and then some, so, I suppose. Yeah, and then yeah. some. Um, yeah. You know, and that really, so, I mean, where did we get this point, notion yeah. that women mm-hmm. lie? Where does that come from? Is there any research that supports that? Um, actually, the research supports the opposite: that most women mm-hmm. in contested custody cases do not make false allegations. And and I haven't conducted this research. Other folks have. Um, and there's some research that suggests that men are more likely to make false allegations in uh, child custody disputes. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question in terms of where that comes from. Um, I think we have to be honest that there's an incredible amount of gender bias in our systems and um, the legal system well, is, is the, one the arena. Well, the disgruntled fathers would say that gender bias is in favor of the woman. I mean, how how many times have I read or seen something or just Googled something and wham, you see all of this stuff about how the courts are biased against men. And so you're saying, oh, wait a minute, they're not? Mm -hmm. They're actually biased against the women? Yes. So that that is a common conception that the courts, and I've heard it time and time again, and I've heard it from um, feminist male colleagues and feminist male friends of mine, and it's not to say that, um, there are not situations, and I've known some personally, um, where men have been engaged with uh, very abusive um, moms and women um, and have been traumatized and their stories not understood or heard. And I, I know one in particular, one great dad who, uh, who lost custody of his child um, because of the manipulations of his uh, ex-wife. Um, so that does happen. Uh, but overwhelmingly, a number of studies demonstrate that women are largely disadvantaged during divorce and custody disputes. And abuse survivors uh, experience a particular type of gender bias where you have women's credibility in terms of abuse allegations frequently questions. You see this in so many arenas of the legal system. You see this with rape and trauma survivors. Um, and and, uh, in other arenas of society, uh, we see evidence of abuse completely disregarded or minimized or ignored. Um, For many, it's too difficult to even consider, or it's too uh, shameful, and we don't talk about it as a society. Uh, You see double standards for parenting, um, where attorneys usually advise women in these situations to be as lily white as possible because there's an expectation um, or a double standard that women really evidence, um, you know, uh, or present as uh, motherly or as lily white, um, whereas you have so many stories or have encountered so many stories um, where the husband has been unfaithful uh, or abusive and it doesn't, oftentimes or or sometimes has not mattered with regard to um, the decisions that are made with custody and visitation. But if a a mom or a woman has engaged in the same type of infidelity 
or abuse, you can be pretty certain she's going to lose custody of her child. So there are a lot of inadequacies within our systems and our court systems, which tend to, you know, minimize abuse, but like the larger society, you know, just a parallel of the larger society, uh, and punish, punish um, tendency to minimize abuse and not punish uh, the abuser. And there's also a real focus on um, pathologizing, you know, as, as you were talking now, about before. Now, what do you mean by survivors. pathologizing? What do you mean um, by that? Well, the the focus oftentimes when there's, you know, allegations of abuse are presented, allegations of abuse against the parent, the mom, or the child, um, the focus of the investigation um, is not about determining whether abuse has actually occurred and the impact of the abuse on the victim, but on pathologizing or psychologizing uh the victim, and I know you've spoken about this on uh, previous shows, which have been excellent that I've listened to. Uh, you've spoken about the parental alienation syndrome, how that's often invoked in court systems to trump allegations of abuse. And so this happens uh, oftentimes when a survivor um, alleges abuse on the part of his or her partner and the the focus then becomes, uh, oh, oftentimes the woman or the mom is trying to alienate the child against the dad. Let's focus on that, um, on the fact that she may be, um, these are terms that are just thrown out, uh, borderline or histrionic yeah. or alienating the child, you know. Yeah, that parental so. alienation syndrome uh, that was started by basically mm-hmm. a pedophile in the 90s, mm-hmm. um, the, they've, they've gotten smarter about that. They're no longer calling it a syndrome mm-hmm. because it clearly was not a syndrome, and a number of professional organizations, you know, came down on it. So, but now they've just, they're just calling it parental alienation. So they're, they're dropping the, the yeah. syndrome and calling it parental alienation. And I have a particular yeah. problem with that one because where is it written? Where, how does one's mind work? when one assumes that the only reason a child wouldn't want to be around his father is because the mom is poisoning the kid's mind. Does it not occur that there may be other reasons this child wouldn't want to be around that person? But for some reason, courts don't see it that way. Yeah. You know, if if a child uh, doesn't want to be around daddy, it must be because mommy Mm -hmm. is poisoning his mind. I mean, it it just, it's such simplistic thinking. It's, It's difficult for me to grasp how well-educated yeah. people and well-meaning people can buy that, and yet they do. Yeah, well, it shows you the power of uh, bias, uh, the the power of gender bias, and also the power of folks not really wanting to recognize that abuse occurs in families, and folks who look upstanding or seem very nice, um, you know, well-intentioned people actually engage in abusive behavior. Uh, and sexual abuse, you know, Richard Gardner, who created that term, um, has done, I think, incredible damage uh, with the construction of the concept of parental alienation. And I really, you know, I urge psychologists, mental health professionals, and I'm sorry to say folks in my field have, um, you know, endorsed uh, oftentimes this, this construct if they would simply read uh, some of Gardner's books, which I have, they were all self-published, by the way, by his own press. Yes, very, they're all self-published, um, and his credentials are, I mean, he had a degree, but he was pre- he presented himself as a, a, a very um, out-there practicing um, um, professional, and in fact, he had a very limited degree, he, or limited professional mm-hmm. experience. Um, and he, was, yeah. he advocated pedophilia. I mean, he, how anybody can buy anything yeah. that that man said is beyond yeah. me. He was an advocate yeah. of pedophilia, you know, and he made a and killing he, going around the country to courts, you know, mm-hmm. helping abusive fathers gain custody of their children. I, I mean, it just astounds yeah. me how people can so wholesale look at a person that, that really was a rather despicable character and yeah. buy anything they had to say. I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> it's beyond me. I think me. if any... I, I, any well-trained mental health professional read his writings, um, they would see, you know, very, very questionable ethical and clinical judgments. Um, 
he recommended, this is straight out of one of his books in 1988, he recommended joint interviews with a father who had been accused of abuse and the child in which the father directly confronts and what he says cross-examines the child about <laughs> allegations. And any interpretation, and he, this is right from his writings, uh, any uh, child's overt expressions of fear, um, of possibly being retaliated against uh, by the dad as evidence of the child's embarrassment about lying rather than as uh, truth-telling or potential truth-telling. Um, and he, he also argues that, or argued, he's passed now since passed, um, to take, and this is, when it, this is a direct quote, to take the allegations of maltreatment seriously is a terrible disservice to these children. Uh, so on, the, on this basis alone, one can see how, you know, questionable is not even the word. Um, and I also wanted to, you know, go back to, you know, you said um, parental alienation syndrome is not necessarily used as the term, and you're absolutely right. And so the courts use other terminology like just parental alienation. But there were attempts to get that syndrome into um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. That's like the Mental Health Professionals Bible. It's published by the American Psychiatric Association. And there have been several attempts um, to have that be considered as a diagnosis in the DSM. Yes. And there have been yes. great advocates. Uh, Paula Kaplan is one of them, feminist psychologist, and I've, I've written with her in an um, an attempt to educate our, our field of psychologists about this unsubstantiated um, diagnosis. And um, I'm happy to say it didn't make it into the last uh, iteration of DSM. Yes, but it's not going to go away. You know it's not going to go away. You know, the, the advocates yeah. for that kind of belief are not going to go away. They just don't. They they may yeah. rename it, they may reshape it, but they're going to hang on to that belief forever. Um, yeah, well, certainly an abuser um, or somebody engaging in sexual abuse um, would not want to let go of that. No, that because it's a great explanation. My kids yep. hate me. It's her fault. You know, I mean, it's mm -hmm. a, it's a gosh. I wish I had a, such an easy explanation for things where that. You know, I have done wrong or been, you know, <laughs> in my life. That, wouldn't that be lovely to have just this little easy explanation that it's someone else's fault? We've mm -hmm. talked about all of these things, and, and this is not the first time that we talked about it. And people who work in this field, people who, who experience this, are very familiar with all of this stuff that we've been talking about so far, Julie. But what about, I'm distressed so often by public perceptions. I had an experience not too long ago with a woman who said that uh, she met a, a woman who lost her children, lost custody of her children, and she, uh, my friend, wasn't sure why. wasn't sure why she lost custody of her children. What did she do wrong? There must have been something wrong. Right. And I tried right. to say, actually, this happens to perfectly wonderful mothers, you know, all the time, you know, and and I tried to educate. But then a few weeks later, I talked with her again, and she said, oh, that woman who lost her children, she's a drinker. Mm. And I mm. said, oh, was she a drinker before she lost her children? Well, what difference does that make? It makes all the difference. <laughs> it makes all the difference. You know, but yeah. it, for my friend, it was like it wasn't the explanation of how women are treated in courts was not – accepted. My explanation of that mm -hmm. was not accepted. So she had to find an answer for why this woman lost her cust lost custody of her children. Aha, she's a drinker. There that explains it. Do you see this when 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 we're talking about the power of the courts, that power doesn't end at the courtroom door, does it? No, and you know, I've heard uh I've heard many such stories. It's very painful actually um conducting these interviews with uh, women um, who've lost custody of their children for, let's just say, no really good reason. Um, they're the most, most painful stories. Um, they're actually traumatic to listen to. Uh, 
and um, you know just the just the range of reasons. Uh, you know, one woman said you know the custody evaluators thought that even though she she was a great mom and taking care of her child and the child always lived with her up until the age of twelve, thirteen the courts figured, oh, it's time for the child to spend some time with the dad and reverse custody, you know, based on that or, you know, reverse custody because the kid, and this sounds crazy, but it happened. Um, The dad had brought pictures of the child into the courtroom without a shirt on. This is when the child was in his care. Messy long hair on a skateboard. Um, It was accusing the mom of, you know, not taking good enough care of this child because he looked kind of like, you know, rough or like a hippie. And that was the, that was the interest of the child to be a skateboarder. He was that kind of kid, long haired kid, but that was used um, within a very conservative uh, court system to uh, reverse custody. It's very hard for people to really understand this. I think um, like so many experiences, unfortunately, unless they've had the experience, um, or they know folks who are close to them who've had the experience because it's really unfathomable. It's mind it's mind blowing. Um, some of these decisions that are made, uh, you know, there's assumption that you know custody evaluators are well trained, that judges understand abuse dynamics. Um, there's uh, there's problems with dual relationships in courts as well, um, especially in smaller areas where. Uh, judges um, have very close relationships with the attorneys, the firm, family court attorneys who are in their courtrooms. Family court attorneys have dual relationships with custody evaluators and, and you know, know which ones to recommend to the court or not, you know, based upon their particular case. Uh, and it's, you know, you have attorneys who are um, engaging in fundraising efforts for family court judges or inviting judges to speak at conferences. And when you start getting into these dual relationships, it's very, very hard for anybody really to make unbiased uh, evaluations and decisions. So what are we doing about this? I know you're doing research and you're doing writing. Mm -hmm. Tell us about what's down the road for you. Um. Well, you know, I am grateful to all the the activists and advocates and writers who've come before me um, to try to address a very challenging situation. Uh, I just uh, co-edited a book with a colleague of mine, Corinne Dachi, uh, and it's entitled Gender Psychology and Justice, the Mental Health of Women and Girls in the Legal System. I have a, a chapter in that text that speaks to Um, divorce and custody proceedings and there are other chapters my colleague Corinne does research on women in drug courts and and it really reveals this this book how gender intersects with race class um, etc and a multitude of identities that impact the legal status and well-being of women and girls and it's an attempt to educate uh, mental health professionals and court professionals about how gender-related assumptions and stereotypes um, have influenced um, the legal system and have influenced decision-making in the legal system. Uh, So many practices and principles um, in the last 40 years uh, are based upon personal theories or personal biases about gender, much more so than scientific evidence. And we need to bring good scientific empirical research into the decision, uh, into decision making. So one would think that mental health professionals and, and social psychologists, social workers, et cetera, get in-depth training in these issues. And it's not really the case, um, uh, especially as, as relates to legal proceedings. That's an area that's not always talked about in uh, doctoral programs and counseling psychology and clinical psychology, for example, which I'm most familiar with. Um, so hopefully, and that book will be released in April, but you can get pre-orders now through NYU Press, but hopefully that will make an impact uh, in terms of training and influencing uh, mental health professionals so they don't go along with you know, debunked 
unscientific theories and assumptions. And so I've done um, uh, some research on this um, and have other book chapters and the like uh, have have developed or um, convened rather symposium presentations at the American Psychological Association on this topic. And you, you may assume that there would be more kinds of discussions and symposiums on this topic, but there really aren't at the APA. And um, I'm grateful that those presentations have been accepted and I've been able to engage in conversations with others. Um, and, and like I said, there are other activists uh, and advocates throughout the country who are really trying to educate and address um, the bias and inequitable practice. Mm-hmm. When we are educating or trying to educate a system as um, complicated as the judicial system, it gets tough, though. It's, it, it gets really mm-hmm. tough tougher than just trying to educate the public. And I see that educating the public, and let people who have experienced this know it. People who have studied it know it. People who have been sheltered and never seen this uh, in, in a relative or a good close friend just are not getting it. They just do not get it. And that includes people who are working in that system. The guardians ad litem, for example. Um, the uh, psychologists, I, I, you, know, I, you know, I mean, hopefully in another few months I will be joining the ranks of the, the psychology PhD people. Um, you know, knock wood. <laughs> I'm still not convinced I'm going to live quite long enough for that, but, you know, all right. Um, but those folks, unless they are involved in this, unless they see it, seem to be totally oblivious to the, this power and control issue and how it's being perverted in the justice system. And mm-hmm. certainly lawmakers who might have some influence on requiring certain types of education seem to be pretty generally oblivious to this as a situation. Yeah. Is that your perception? Why do you think that is? What can we do about it? What can we do to change this perception and get things back. Because meanwhile, you know, while we're talking about the mothers who are crushed, we're not talking, we haven't been talking about these children who are suffering from these decisions either. Um, And there is a large cadre of of young people now who have spent uh, lives being forced to live with people who were abusive or people who, who literally abused them um, and grow to maturity in that kind of an environment and and either feel that that it worked out okay um, and they kind of join the abuser in uh, rejecting the other parent or they are traumatized and they are living with the results of the, those years of trauma and they are very bitter toward the court system that forced them to do that. So in the midst of our conversation, we really haven't been talking about these children. Yeah, that is true. Um, uh, and yeah, and, and we yeah, mentioned, I, I believe, that that courts courts use in every state they have what's called best interests of the child. Yeah, mm-hmm. but that's different from the safety of the child. And right. the best interests of the child vary from person to person. Um, so, right. you know, what, what, what about these kids? Yeah. What are we doing about power and control as, mm-hmm. in, in the judicial system as it applies to these children? What can we do about it? Yeah. The, a lot of issues that you presented just there, and it's uh, very complex and, as you said, extremely challenging, and it takes a lot of energy, quite frankly, um, yeah. to keep engaged in this, in this, uh, because, it, as I said, even when I told you I was interviewing women and the stories are so traumatizing, uh, it's very difficult. But I said to myself, if I'm not writing about this, you know, if I'm not going to write or do something and attempt to educate you know, the people in my field, who's, who's going to do this? Um, you can't ask uh, somebody who's not engaged necessarily in the profession, who's traumatized and has been beaten down um, by a system. Uh, to take that up, um, I, you know, I would say that we as mental health professionals need to get 
uh, much better training in these areas as relates to the legal system and bias in the legal system. And it's not just family court. It's a variety of other areas uh, in, the, in the courtroom and in the, in the judicial system that we should educate our politicians, uh, that we can write our politicians about our stories, uh, send them research, send judges uh, research, um, good research. And there's enough out there at this point to educate judges and, and court officials. Uh, and I think, you know, with regard to the, the children, um, you know, who's speaking up for them uh, and they're they're really the victims in these situations. Uh, we need to stay away from these cookie cutter approaches, which are so easy. You know, the court system often comes up with, as relates, for example, to custody or visitation or what that should look like. Um, and they're relatively sort of arbitrary prescriptions about. You know, the child shall spend, you know, three days with one parent, the primary parent, you know, and then the next two or three days with the other parent without a consideration to issues of attachment and how attachment, and there's enough research on this too, attachment theory um, and attach research, what happens uh, when um, a child is disconnected from his or her primary caretaker and the short and I, I was approached I was approached a year or so mm-hmm. ago by a, a a young woman in a small town in Washington state and she had just had a baby 3 weeks old and wasn't married to the father but the father decided they were they were both teenagers and the father wanted custody full custody the courts the judge determined that this 3 week old baby would spend one week with the teenage father mm-hmm. and one week with the teenage mother, a three-week-old yeah. child. Yeah. Is there any any understanding of infant psychology and developmental needs? I mean, yeah. that child is not going to attach with anyone. There goes breastfeeding. I mean, how can any judge think that that's a good solution to for this child? Yeah. Well, it's it's I, often I, I just, it's often very disruptive those kinds of uh, situations, um, and you know you mentioned that example with the baby. You know there are other situations where a child's already four or five, six, seven, eight years old, and I've these are some of the women that I've interviewed, and they've been with their mom for that period of time, and then the courts come and they reverse custody or they there's very disruptive uh, visitation that's implemented. Uh, making it very challenging for the child who's bounced back and forth from home to home. You know, I, there's no really easy kinds of uh, solutions to this. And you have judges who have to make decisions about kind of what to do. Um, there's no easy decisions, but I ask that those decisions at least be based on um, sense <laughs> with regard to empirical research on attachment, a better exploration of who is the primary uh, parent here who has been providing care and and nurturance to the child and really honor that uh, and not create more disruption for for children and assume that um, the child necessarily needs both parents equally, particularly if one of those parents is or has been abusive or neglectful. Mm-hmm. That but it to seems to me challenge. that in many of these, these judicial decisions, if a woman says abuse or, God forbid, mm-hmm. sexual abuse of the child, it's almost as if the courts overreact and assume that she's lying about that and so they are going to punish her for making those accusations by taking away the child. It seems to me, and this is just my perception, I don't have any research to support this, but it seems to me that when fathers get custody, they get 100% custody. Mothers get custody, it's joint custody more often. That's my assumption. I am not basing that on any fact or any study. Do you have any feelings about my assumptions there? Do you think I'm way off, or do you have you do you think I might have well, it, have that assumption based on something? Well, I know many situations where a woman has been advised by her attorney um, not to talk about uh, issues of potential abuse or sexual abuse 
on the part of the dad uh, towards the child because that will put that mom at risk for losing custody of the child. And that has actually played out and that's actually happened when um, a mom has expressed allegations of abuse. And as we talked about before, then parental alienation is brought into the picture and it trumps the allegations of abuse and uh, many um, good parents have lost custody to abusers as a result. So I think, you know, what you're saying is very valid. Yeah. It's a, in a, it's a remarkable situation. It's a, it's a horrible situation. I'm distressed not only by the situation, but by how few people, unless they're actually involved in it, understand what's going on. Um, yeah. And I don't know, uh, I guess the more we come out with studies, the more researchers like you uh, who examine the issue, the more likely that popular press will pick it up, that, you know, mm-hmm. but I, it's a tough road to hoe. And as we mentioned earlier in the show, mm-hmm. some of this research started coming out in the late 1990s. So we're looking at 20 years. So mm-hmm. for 20 years, yeah. people have been saying, whoa, this appears to be a problem. Whoa, this is a problem. Wow, this is a huge problem. And we've got data on it. And yet I'm not seeing politicians, decision makers, the courts. I'm not seeing any kind of popular response or outrage to this. And I find that really distressing because children, you know, I mean, our children are our own to raise, but they are also societies. And if I see these issues as a huge threat to children and children's futures, and mm-hmm. I am just gobsmacked that that we don't see more outrage outside of the domestic violence advocacy community. Um, and I don't know what to do about that. I don't I don't know what to do about it. But it, it just it, it it it's definitely a need that's out there. Um, so maybe with continued research, with continued um, um, exposure will reach that tipping point. I think it was Garland Waller who calls it a, a tipping point, where you get enough, you get enough information, and then, boom, it starts to tip, and the popular press will then pick it up. And once the popular press picks it up, then it seems like the general pub- public starts to understand it. Um, mm-hmm. Simplification on my part, but that's how I see it. <laughs> we well, have, I appreciate you for for focusing on these issues, uh, on your show, you know, and that's one way, a major way to address these kinds of topics and issues is getting that information out there to the public. Well, and this show is free. It's available to anyone. So please, you know, listeners and Julie, everybody, um, you know, send out the, the, the link. Um, maybe we can get mm-hmm. folks to, to get a, a little bit more education, a little bit better education. And uh, I will let folks like, like you and uh, some of the other outstanding professionals who are doing research to work on focusing to um, uh, teach the psychologists and the guardians ad litem, um, you know, with a psychology background about these issues and um, come up with solutions for it. Julie, mm-hmm. I have enjoyed speaking with you, and I thank you so much for your expertise. I thank you for your research and uh, mm-hmm. some of the work that you're doing. And again, what's the name of the book that you have coming out? The book is Gender, Psychology, and Justice, the Mental Health of Women and Girls in the Legal System. And it's published by NYU Press, and it's due to be released uh, in April. But like I said, one could pre-order copies now. Great. I plan on doing that. And then can you come back and talk about that in a little bit and uh, in, a, in a couple months, and we'll see how that's doing, and we'll talk specifically about that book. Sure, I would love to. Thank you for the offer. Great. Great. I, I would love it. It's a, it's a topic that we can't talk enough about, I think, right now. Thank you so much for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. Next week, we have Elaine Davies uh, talking about cyber-stalking and harassment, uh, another huge issue, I think, in, uh, in, in our uh, society today. Right now, I'm going to close the, the show with a quote. Sometimes um, I try to find a quote, Julie, every week to sum up um, our, our conversation. And uh, sometimes it's, it's tougher than other times. And um, one of the things that um, 
and my my blog just well, here we go there we go I was gonna say my my iPad just went blank for in time for my quote mm-hmm. so thank you very much technology but here it is we got it back up again the quote I have for today is the system is hurting the children and should be held accountable it was an anonymous com- comment. Uh, in some research that I did, but the system is hurting the children and should be held accountable. And I think that's significant. Thank you so much for joining us, Three Women, Three Ways. 